Amen. Amen. Well, my name is AJ. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to jump right into it this morning. Uh, we're starting a new series that's going to take us through the rest of the Advent season. Pastor Tellus and I got together, and we're praying around what we felt like the Lord was highlighting and emphasizing for us this Christmas season. And, you know, Christmas marks the Advent, the coming of Jesus, and, and how we behold him and how we see him uh, is, is what is our responsibility as the church this season, is to, is to help us see him rightly. And when Jesus comes at the Advent in Bethlehem that we celebrate on Christmas, that moment doesn't just mark the birth of a child, but it marks the birth of a king. Because the child that was born was born of a royal bloodline, fulfilling an age-old prophecy about an eternal kingdom that would begin with his birth and reign and last forevermore. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about what it means for Jesus to be king. It's the title of my message and the title of my series. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the word of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You say amen? All right, why don't we pray? Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, King Jesus, come and rule in this place and in our hearts and in our minds today. Fill this place with your presence. Grant us, O Lord, a revelation. Help us to see you correctly today. Lord, I'm asking that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would understand what the Spirit of the living God is saying in this place on this day. O Lord, come and have your way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Great. Nope, you're good. All right. Um, Jesus is king, is he not? And I love this topic. I love talking about leadership in general. Uh, leadership and marriage are like my two favorite things to talk about. Um, it's probably the only series I would ever do if, if it was just up to me. Um, leadership and marriage. And then don't get me started on leadership in marriage. And that's where me, me and the husbands get together. And I love it. And they feel okay about it. Um, but the Bible says iron has to sharpen iron, so that's what, that's what has to happen. Um, I love leadership. I love talking about leadership. In part, I feel like a stand-up comic now that I have this. This is hilarious. What's the deal with leadership? Um, the other day, <laughs> in part, part of the reason I love to talk about leadership is because good leadership is really hard to find, is it not? It's so hard to find because leadership is difficult. It's not easy, especially if you're going to do it right. Leadership is not just about accomplishing a set of goals, achieving a set of objectives, or going from point A to point B. I mean, you can do that, but that doesn't mean you've led anybody there with you. So to be a great leader 
means you've got to take the people with you along that journey. And people are tough. We've got different preferences, different opinions, different thoughts on how things should go, different thoughts about where we should go, differently gifted on, on, on how they participate in that. People hurt people and offend people, and there's relational issues along the way. And, and just leading people alone is tough, but then you've got to actually lead yourself first before you can lead them, which means you've got to show up full of vision and clarity, a heart of love and compassion, but also motivated and, and focused so that you can rally those with you to the place that you're trying to go. And what I'm saying is that is hard, which is why a lot of people choose not to lead. And it's why a lot of people in leadership positions choose not to lead that way. They opt for what I like to call the act like a tyrant model of leadership, which is the get in or get out, my way or the highway. Doesn't matter why you're here, you are here, so let's go. And if you don't like the way it's going, bye. Because that model of leadership is, quite frankly, easier. And to its credit, is pretty effective. Those leaders get a lot of things done. They build great things. It's just terrible for all the people that follow them. And the leaders are preserved, but those who follow those leaders aren't. And they become the price that is paid for the glorification of a man or a woman who wants to do things their way, my way. And so when we look across the course of history, the course of the world, and we look at what man has made, when we lead that type of way, without care or concern for the people, without care or acknowledgement for God and doing it his way, what you see is that when men become kings, things turn out as they ought not be. I don't know if you know this, I assume you do, but if you haven't thought about it lately, the way things are now is not the way things are supposed to be. Like the economic disparity in our nation and in the, across the globe is not supposed to be like that. Racial injustice, systemic racism in our systems, our institutions, and in our history, like that's not supposed to be there. We're not supposed to need a foster care system. A divorce lawyer is not supposed to be a profession. Do you understand? Like that's not how things are supposed to be. Let me make it more personal. The pain you feel in your life, you're not supposed to feel that type of pain. The dysfunction you have in your marriage and your family, you're not supposed to have that type of dysfunction relationally. But when men rule in their flesh, this is what we produce. And it's got me wondering that if this is what we can create when we're in charge, maybe it's time for somebody else to be in charge. Maybe it's time we look for somebody else. Somebody, you ever been in those group settings? I know like my young adults will feel me on this one because you know, in our coming of age years, we, we said this a lot, but maybe you remember a time when you and your peers were facing a challenge, a problem, an issue, could be at work, could be a social setting, could be something, and it's just above and beyond all of y'all's heads. You've never done this before. You don't know what you're doing or, or how to do it, and you're just all overwhelmed, and you just look around, and you're just like, where's the adult at? Like, where's the grown-up here who's going to tell us what to do? Surely it's not us. We cannot be the ones. <laughs> I look at our world I look at what's happening globally, I look at our country, I look at our community, I look at our society, and I go, where, where, like, where's the adult at? Where are the grown-ups? Where is the one who's coming to save us from ourselves? Because surely, this cannot be the way that it is. 
But when men and women rule in the flesh, this is what we build. Systems that are corrupt and that hurt and that damage people. So maybe it's time for a new one to be in charge. That idea is the main idea behind the story that I want to tell you this morning, which is the story of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. And Israel, as we do, as every nation, as every country uh, in all of history has, they had a lot of bad leaders spread across even from the start. Every one of them was flawed in one or many ways. You go to Abraham, the first, the father of the faith, the father of the nation, the man that God chose out of all of humanity. He said, from you, I'll birth a family that will grow into a nation and that nation will bless the world. You will be my conduit through it. I'm gonna lead you into the land that I've called you to. And along the way, every king Abraham encountered, his voice track was basically, greetings, O favored king. May I interest you in my wife, my sister? And you're like, Abraham, bro, the family, the family. That's like your thing is the family. Jacob was a liar. He was a deceiver, a manipulator. On down the line, all the way through, one after the other, every one of them has fatal flaws. And even the great ones, they didn't want anything to do with. So Moses, who we consider one of the greatest leaders of all time, leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery, towards the promised land. Time and time again, they're always going like, man, Moses... I'd rather be enslaved than follow you. I'd rather be under Pharaoh than in your type of freedom. I'm sick of this free food that's delivered to my doorstep every day. I'm sick of all this exercise I get wandering through the wilderness. I'm in the best shape of my life. (laughs) Moses, sick of you. But if that doesn't expose the condition of our heart, which is that we can always find a reason to be discontent with what we have. That's a human trait right there, is it not? We can always find a way to be discontent with what we have. In the Israelites, God's chosen people were discontent with their leadership. So what they do, if you know the story, they come to the prophet Samuel. Samuel, the prophet of God at the time, he helped to judge over and rule over the people of of Israel. And they come to Samuel and they demand a king. They come to Samuel. So Samuel would ask God, to solve what they perceived to be their problem. But pay attention. They didn't look to God for his solution. They brought their solution to God and asked him to do it their way. Now, this would be a good point in the service for you to put your toes under your chair if you don't want me to step on them. Because that's what you do. Is you make a mess in your life and you go, God, I've got a solution to the problem you gave me. Ain't that what Adam said in the garden? This woman that you gave me messed up my life. We go, God, these problems that you could have stopped, these issues that you gave me, this family that you placed me in, it's caused me a lot of problems. So why don't you do things my way for once, and we'll see if things don't turn out better. So what we do, we bring our solutions to God and ask him to bless them. They come to God and they ask for a king so that they could be like every other nation. But God did not make them to be like any other nation. He specifically made them to be separate, unique, and different from every other nation. They were not meant to have a king. The covenant that God made with Israel was like this. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Okay? It's a relational a mutual relational covenant. 
where we look to him as God, as creator, as author, as guide, as leader, as head, and we trust him, and we obey him, and we follow him, and in return, he will treat us like we are his people, and he will care for us, and provide for us, and redeem us, and bless us, and help us. I will be your God, you will be my people. And because of natural circumstances, because of the fallibility of man, Israel quickly becomes discontent with that type of relationship. And they say, you know, we'd rather not have things the way you decided they should be. And in their dissatisfaction for the way things are, they chose to go the way of the world instead of going the way of God. And instead of being set apart from every other nation, they wanted to become like every other nation. And they would forsake the very thing that made them different and made them unique and made them special in God's eyes. That he would be the one who rules over them and nobody else. They would rather not have the unique identity that God gave them so that they could have a generic identity and be like everybody else. What is it in our hearts that is so resistant to being what God has called us to be? And why is it that we desire to be things he's called us not to be? He has given you a good identity and a good name and has blessed you. And yet there's a pull, a tug in our heart to go the other way. We don't want to be like God. We want to fit in and be like everybody else. God has called you out of the world. Why do you run back into it? God has set you free from sin. And yet every day you wake up going, where are my shackles at again? Where can I put back on these chains that God delivered me from? How can I find a way to excuse myself and to live in the old life I used to live? God has called you righteous. He's purified you with the blood of Jesus. He sees you and he sees one that is washed as white as snow, made clean and renewed. And we want to go rolling around in the mud of impurity. We desire it. We crave it. We want it. And we justify it. I mean, God has redeemed you. He has given you a new name, a new nature. He's called you son and daughter out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. And yet we have this pull in our hearts away from him. Man, we don't need a king. We need someone to save us from ourselves. We would rather not have the thing that God gave us that makes us unique. Because there's something within us that desires to be like everybody else. Israel demanded a king. They wanted to be like every other nation. And God gave them what they asked for. Which is one of the scariest realities in scripture. Which is that sometimes God will give you what you ask for. And you ought to be real careful what you ask him for. They said make us like every other nation. Give us a king. And so he does. He gives them Saul. If you know the Bible, Saul does a terrible job as king. His reign is marked by sin, disobedience, and dysfunction. God appoints David, the shepherd boy, to be the next king of Israel, to come out of the sheep pen and into the throne room because David was a man after God's own heart. And so he puts David into the, to the throne room, into the seat of the king. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes an agreement with David. He comes to him because God realizes, listen, 
The Bible says Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. God knows what's in the heart of man. So God knew the moment they asked for a king what was going to happen. He, he, he knew how this would play out. And he determines in advance, I'm going to use this royal line of David to establish my kingdom here on the earth. So he says to David in 2 Samuel 7, he says, there's going to be one from your lineage, from your offspring, that becomes this eternal king of an everlasting kingdom. And listen to the way that he describes him. He says, he says that this king, he says he's going to be your offspring, David. So he's going to be your child. He's going to come from your line, the line of Davidic kings. He's going to be in your genealogy, in your family tree. But I, the Lord, will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So you've got this natural lineage through David, where David is, is his dad. And you've got this spiritual li lineage through Yahweh, where God the creator is also his father. And then he says the kingdom that he establishes and the throne that he sits upon is going to reign forever. It's going to be established forever. This is God's beautiful redemption plan to even use the sinful desires of our hearts to work a solution that restores us unto himself. And if you know how the story goes, it gets a lot worse before it gets any better. And you have all the kings of David who come after him, Solomon on down the line. And if you read throughout First and Second Kings, the, the story and the testimony of the Davidic line of kings, there's one phrase that rings out over and over and over again throughout all the scriptures. And it's not a phrase that you want written on your headstone or in your obituary or ever testified to about you. But you'll see it over and over again in the books that describe the reigns of the kings. It said, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That was the testimony of human leadership who led out from under God's will and desired other gods and worshiped other gods and lived for their own name and for their own flesh and for, their, for themselves. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that dysfunctional, sinful, idol-worshiping line of kings eventually ended in the final Babylonian exile, where Babylon conquered Israel, destroyed the temple, and exiled the people out. And the men that the nation and the people of God had put so much faith and belief and expectation in fully and finally failed them. And 400 years later almost, when Jerusalem is under Roman occupation, and the line of the kings of Israel is long gone, and the prophets of God have not spoken, an angel shows up to a young Jewish girl and he says, greeting us, oh favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, I don't know what your reaction would be, but God's been quiet for a long time in Mary's life, all of Mary's life. And even the testimony of her father and her father's father and her father's father's father and on down the line was that this God had been silent for a long time. And yet the angel appears and goes, greetings, you are blessed. The Lord is with you. Which is your reminder this morning that God's silence does not mean God's absence. Because even when you don't see it, he's working. God is always up to something. He is always moving. The Bible says he works all things together for the good of those who love him. So the angel comes to Mary and says, oh, you're blessed. God is, God is with you. And he begins to describe this child that Mary would become pregnant with. And he describes the child as one who would be 
the son of the most high God. He'll have a divine spiritual lineage. He goes on to say he will be born by the spirit of God. And he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. He's going to be the son of God. And he's going to be the son of David. And he's going to sit on a kingdom, on a throne in a kingdom that will have no end. Now I know for Mary that set her soul on fire. Because that is what the people of Israel had put their faith and their hope on for centuries. That at some point, someone would come to fulfill what God started with David and even on before then. The Advent season is so wonderfully beautiful because it is so much more than the birth of Jesus. It is that. But when you understand more richly what that means, you realize in this context, it marks the birth of a righteous ruler, a son of heaven and a son of earth who would rule and reign over the earth in a way no other king ever had or could ever had reigned before. It marks the turning point of all of human history. And if I have a thesis for you this morning, it's just this, that Jesus is unlike any other king who has ever reigned, and that is good news. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you three reasons why. One is this, Jesus is the most high king. The angel starts with this title, he says, he will be the son of the most high. Now, I know you know this. But there's only one most high. Can we agree to that? There might be high things, but there's only one most high thing. And Jesus is the son of the most high thing, the most high God, the most high king, the most high ruler. That means there is nothing that is higher than him. There is nothing that is more powerful than him. There is nothing that is better than him. Nothing that is greater than him. None sit before him or reign or lord over him. He is above all things. And Paul even talks about this in the books of, in the book of Ephesians chapter one. It's not just that Jesus is better than any other earthly king. It's that he is literally higher above them. He says that Christ is seated at God's, look at this, at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. He is the son of a most high God, seated on a most high throne, far above every other ruler, every other power, every other dominion, every other person with authority. Matter of fact, he's above every name that is named. That means there is nothing that God doesn't have dominion, authority, or power over. And there is nothing that has dominion, power, or authority over your God. Every earthly king has a limited rule. Jesus is over all of them. He sits enthroned in the heavens over all of creation. That's where his throne is. But thank God, his reign extends to earth. Because that's where all my problems happen anyways. So I'm happy he's up there in heaven. But if you're like me, I could use his power and authority here on the earth. And the Bible is clear. He is seated in heaven, but he reigns over the earth. Which means that there's not a problem in your life that is not outside the purview of your God. 
That means there's nothing happening in your life that the Lord your God was not previously already aware of. That means there's nothing happening to you that God is not sovereign over. He is Lord of all of it. He's even Lord of the winds and the waves. When we talk about Christ's reign extending to the earth, it's not just that it extends to the people on the earth. He is king over the natural order of the earth. When the wind gets out of control, Jesus tells it to settle down, and it obeys without question. When the waves rage, he says, be quiet, and they get quiet. When a donkey needs to talk to a king, he says, donkey, you go ahead and talk, and the donkey opens up his mouth. When water needs to become wine, he says it, and it moves at his behest. He is Lord, I need you to know, over everything. Everything is under the command and control of God. So no matter where you find yourself today, I just want to remind you, God is in control. He's got it. Somebody say, God's got it. God's got it. He's got it. He's sovereign over it. He can change the outcome. He can redirect the conversation. He can make it turn out in your favor. The Bible says he works all things. How many of the things? All things together for the what? For the good of those who love him. Not because he's not able to, but because he's wonderfully able to. He is Lord over all of it. And he is in control. And that means you don't have to be. It means you can take a deep breath and you can release everyone and everything to Jesus because he seats, sits in the heavenly places and has all authority, power, and dominion over all of the affairs of man. He is sovereign. He is the most high king. But it's not his power that's the most remarkable thing about him in my opinion. It's his character because Jesus is also a trustworthy king. When we talk about all the kings of the line of David, all the ones who failed, all the ones who fell short, there was such great expectation placed upon them because of the covenant that God had made with David, that I'm gonna establish a king, a righteous king, a good king. He's gonna establish a throne and a kingdom that's gonna reign forever. And one after another, after another, after another, after another, they all failed and they all fell short. And if you've lived under that type of rule and reign for generations, like your family line can't even remember the last good king that we ever had. And you're now at the point where those kings that were prophesied about have run your nation into the ground. It's actually divided into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And that's made you susceptible to the attacks of enemy nations like Assyria and Babylon. And more than once, you have been conquered and your people have been exiled and you now live in a foreign land under a foreign king who knows nothing about your God. How many of you know you're sick and tired of hearing about the kings of Israel? But then the prophet Isaiah speaks. And he doesn't just speak about the fact that there will be a king, but it's the type of king that he speaks about. Isaiah chapter 11, I want to read this to you. Because when you have been burned by your kings, by your leadership forever, the idea of new ones don't always, doesn't always get you excited because you expect what? More of the same. But Isaiah says, you know that beautiful family tree of David, of all the kings? I mean, it's been chopped down. It's been destroyed. There are no more kings right now from David's line. And then Isaiah writes, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
It's David's dad. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And he'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The branch who comes out of this stump, this tree that has fallen from the line of Jesse, the line of David, this one, he's gonna come and it's gonna be like the spirit of the living God rests upon him. Almost, if you could imagine, like a dove descending and resting on you when you come up out of the waters of baptism. He says he's not gonna be led by his flesh. He's gonna be led with wisdom and understanding, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So no matter how tempted he gets in the wilderness, he will not give in to temptation like earthly men always have. But because he lives by the fear of the Lord, he will resist and stand strong and be the one who resists sin, unlike any other man ever has. He will not judge affairs by what he sees and by, 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 or by what he hears, but he has this inner compass of righteousness, equity for the meek and for the poor, and that is how he will lead. Jesus is unlike any other king who has ever walked the earth before. Because when he shows up on the scene to do his ministry, his message is about the kingdom of God. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' ministry was to usher in the kingdom of God here on the earth. And now, step back for a second. If I were to tell you there is a new uh, kingdom that has been established in the earth, and it is going to take over and rule over every country in the world and its reign will never end. One, terrifying. Uh, so just, it's not gonna happen, it's okay. Um, two, that, that kingdom, that nation would have to be immensely powerful, able to impose its will, resource rich, uh, and able to conquer anyone who stands before or against it. Would it not? Jesus says, there's a kingdom coming that my father has spoken of, and it will establish an eternal kingdom that reigns over the earth. And if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you need to become the weakest. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to become the least. If you want to become the first, go ahead and be the last. And in fact, if you want to gain your life, and have everything your heart ever desired in my kingdom, then you need to get really comfortable with laying your life down for others. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, he says, when, when, when our enemies come against us, do you know what we do to defeat our enemies? We love them. And we forgive them. And we lay our lives down for them. He says, in my kingdom, we will overcome evil by doing good. And it is through acts of sacrificial love 
that Jesus leads his kingdom. He is not a king who takes from his people so that he can get wealthy and live a comfortable life. No, 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 no. He lives a generous life. He takes nothing from anyone. He lives in poverty so that we would find ourselves rich in him. He doesn't avoid the sick or the destitute or the outcast. He spends all of his time with them, healing them, forgiving them, and loving them. He does not send armies of people to the front lines of the battle to die so that he might live. No, 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 no. He goes alone to the front line of the battle to protect many. He himself laying down his life that many might live in his kingdom. In other words, this is an upside down, backwards kingdom. Not like anything else we've ever seen. And look at the testimony of the kingdom that Jesus began all those thousands of years ago. You're a citizen of it. It's all over the world. It has grown and spread. And the greatest weapons that the devil has formed against Christianity and the gospel message of Jesus Christ, every one of them has fallen short. None of them has stopped the work that Jesus started. I will establish my kingdom, my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it because we do not pursue power the way that the world pursues power. We do not seek to conquer and destroy other people. We seek to love and to serve them. And instead of trying to attack and kill them, we lay our lives down that they might experience something of the love of God. That is the way Jesus lives in his kingdom. And because he lives like that, he becomes infinitely trustworthy and reliable. And he becomes the type of king that you want to follow instead of the type of king that you have to follow. Because any other king, you don't have a choice. Jesus says, I'll give you a choice. Look at my actions and hear my words. If that's appealing to you, if you think life ought to be lived differently than the way it's been lived here, the way that you've seen it done, come and join my kingdom and become a citizen of heaven rather than a citizen of earth. He's trustworthy. And Jesus is an eternal king. It's my last point and I'll close. Every other king or ruler has a temporary reign. Here for a limited time only, right? Every leader, even the greatest of them, are temporary. Everybody ends and leaves and moves on or changes or dies at some point. Christ's reign, the scripture is clear, is eternal. And what I want you to remember is that Jesus' throne wasn't established at the advent, it wasn't established in Bethlehem, and it wasn't established on a starry night when three wise men came to bring him gifts. Jesus has ruled on his throne long before you, and he will reign on that throne long after you, which is good news because the kingdom of God stands the test of time. The kingdom of God cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God cannot be overcome by any power or any authority or anybody else in the world. It is a secure and a safe place to find yourself. And that is good news. When um, the angels come to the shepherds in the field, they say, we bring you what? Good news of great joy for all men. That word, good news, we know it as the word gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion. And it means for a messenger to bring a good announcement 
But not like he's bringing you the Washington Post. Not like he's bringing you the New York Times with some good news on the front of it. The word euangelion is used specifically to herald the arrival of a new king. And so it's the good news that a new king is here. Could be the birth of an heir, could be the changing of the guard from one king to the next, but there is an announcement that goes forth in the kingdom, a proclamation that the heralds carry and the messengers run through the streets with, and they announce and they spread all over the kingdom, good news. There's a new king that's here. There's a new reign that we're under, and it is gospel. It is good for you that Jesus is this king. It is good news that Jesus knows what it's like to walk the earth in the flesh. It is good news that you have a king who can sympathize with your weakness. It is good news you have a king who is seated enthroned above every power and authority. It is, it is good news that Jesus does not seek to conquer your soul, but to have compassion on it. It is good news that you have a king who lays his life down that you might gain life in him. It is good news that Jesus is the king. If there's anything we want to leave you with this Christmas season as we think about the advent of Christ is that Jesus is unlike any other king who has ever reigned and that my friends is gospel it's good news because he gives you a choice as to whether you want to enter his kingdom or not and the way you enter into a kingdom is through surrender you say, my self-rule, my self-leadership, me being the Lord of my life, me making all the choices, behaving in ways that please me and gratify my flesh, let's be honest. It's not gotten you very far. And it's certainly not landed at you in a place that you're particularly happy with. It is the product of what human leadership can produce when we don't live under the Lordship of Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're sick and tired of that, Lay down your rule and pick up mine. And I will be your God. And you can be my people. And you will experience what life in the kingdom of God is like under a righteous ruler who has a sovereign reign and a compassionate heart of love for you. And for those of you who find yourself in the kingdom of God this Sunday morning, let me just remind you you are an ambassador of your king. And your words and your thoughts and your actions, they reflect the one you serve. And you are given an opportunity this Christmas season to reflect our king as the light of the world. Hope to the hopeless and life to those who are perishing. Our prayer for you this year is that you would live in a way that acknowledges and honors Jesus as the king of your life. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we adore you. And we thank you just for your sovereignty, your majesty, but God, more than, more than how powerful and righteous and amazing and impressive you are, Lord, it's your love, it's your compassion, and it's your gentleness that astounds us.